Hi, I'm Colonel Retired Kim Casey Campbell, and you're listening to Awaken Nation with Brad Zollis. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Hey, everybody. Uh, I am really jazzed to have you on the show today, Kim. Thank you for, for stopping by. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. I think you're going to love this story because uh, if you don't know who Casey is, I'm going to read her uh, bio real quick. Um, Kim Casey Campbell is a retired Air Force colonel who served in the Air Force for 24 years as a fighter pilot and senior military leader. She has flown 1,800 hours in the A-10 Warthog including more than 100 combat missions protecting troops on the ground in both Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2003, Kim was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for Heroism after an intense close air support mission. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, Kim's Air Force assignments include leadership roles as a group commander responsible for over 1,000 Air Force personnel in South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Uh, you were kind of busy. Am I, am I, am I right about that? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> she also served as the military assistant to the undersecretary of defense for policy. And as the air force senior fellow at the Atlantic council, most recently, Kim served as the director of the center for character and leadership development at the air force Academy. She is also the author of flying in the face of fear a fighter pilot's lessons on leading with courage. Please help me welcome to the show a real top gun, Kim Casey Campbell. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to Abs be here. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I actually have to thank Max James uh, for turning me on to you and what you're doing. Uh, he was part of that uh, leadership council as well. Uh, so big shout out to another pilot, um, a helicopter pilot, uh, who was a jolly green during Vietnam, Mr. Max James. So thank you. And also thank you for your service. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we're in a very strange day and age right now where people are not getting the thank yous, uh, that they deserve. So thank you, Kim. I appreciate all you've done for our country. It's been, uh, I, you know, I'm grateful for the experience, the opportunity it's, 24 years was a long time to spend in the Air Force, but it's also where I learned some of the most impactful and significant lessons, both personally and professionally. So it truly was um, uh, a great opportunity to serve and, and to serve others. And I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, do you miss putting on the uniform? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes and no. Um, <laughs> I do enjoy having a little bit more control over my life and my schedule, um, but I miss um, I miss the people. I miss flying the A-10. I miss supporting our troops on the ground. Uh, I miss the camaraderie uh, yeah. of being in a, in a unit and part of a team. Um, so I do miss that, but I do enjoy spending more time with my family. Uh, that is one of the huge benefits of having retired. There you go. Now, I want to get started. Our listeners are probably sitting on the edge of their seat simply because your story is, is it's phenomenal. Um, 
But this all started way back when, when you wanted to become an astronaut. You want to talk about how that happened? Yeah, yeah I um, I decided in fifth grade, this was my goal. This was my dream. I wanted to be an astronaut. And it happened, I would say, um, out of the blue. I mean, this wasn't anything that I had interest in at all until watching the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger. And I think many of us that are um, of the same generation remember where we were that day because it was a pretty impactful time in our lives. And for me, you know, there was this thrill and excitement of watching the launch and then really the pure devastation of watching kind of the aftermath, um, knowing that all the astronauts died. And I mean, I was really upset watching it And as a fifth grader. I mean, I just... I didn't understand quite why it impacted me so much, but sitting there with my mom, who was an oncology nurse, and she was like, Kim, you know, some people, they die doing what they believe in. They're willing to commit their lives to something bigger and more important. And, you know, there was just something in that moment that connected with me. And I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of something that was more important than just me. And I thought, well, I'll go be an astronaut. My dad had been in the Air Force for a while, and he said, well, a lot of those astronauts are pilots. You might consider going to the Air Force Academy, becoming a pilot, and then that will help you on your path to becoming an astronaut. I, (laughs) to this day, I think he had no idea that I would actually take this and run with it as much as I did. Um, I think it was like this idea and he wasn't really sure what I was going to do with it. But that was a, that was a switch for me. I just completely flipped my motivation, my drive. And this was fifth grade. Uh, So for me, I set that goal and I went after it. So how did you change? Because you did say, you know, you you changed immediately because you wanted to achieve this goal. What shifted in you? Well, I, now I had motivation and drive to excel in school. <laughs> um, you know, fifth grade, you, you know, you kind of lots of different ideas about what you might want to do. But I really, and as I, I grew up and, and got older, I understood the commitment that was required right. to go to the Air Force Academy. I became committed in school. I joined a lot of extracurricular activities. I played sports. Those were a lot of things that I was doing, but now there was purpose. It was like my life had a purpose uh, and it motivated me to excel. I mean, it wasn't just get through, get it done. It was like, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it really well because I know that if I want to go to the Air Force Academy, I'm going to have to be very competitive at a lot of things. Yeah. A lot of people remember the, the, space shuttle challenger disaster i was actually working for a subsidiary of pioneer systems which made the parachutes at at that time for the you know for nasa and uh, the air force and we were crushed at work i mean um we were we were just couldn't believe this happened you know because you get you kind of get a little complacent when you watch i watched all the moon landings okay as a kid so here i am glued to the tv in the late 60s you know waiting for Neil Armstrong and, you know, every other astronaut. So you didn't see so many disasters that, that went down as smooth as glass. And then all of a sudden this happens and we never know what event is going to inspire a little girl to want to grow up and be something bigger. And uh, I want to throw this out too: the space shuttle challenger disaster, I believe was the first time the spotlight was placed on women astronauts as well. So that must have been a big inspiration as well for you. It was, I think in my mind, like it wasn't, I didn't realize that, okay, so 1986, I didn't realize at the time that women weren't allowed to be fighter pilots. I mean, 
there were women astronauts. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why in my world would women not allowed to be be allowed to be fighter pilots at the time? Right. Um, so to me, it was just all part of the process. I got to see these women doing this amazing thing. And, you know, I learned a little bit later that right at the time that that path was closed for women. Thankfully, it opened um, in 1993 when I graduated from high school. So the path was always open uh, for me in terms of wanting to go do that, become a fighter pilot and serve my country. Um, but yeah, it's certainly an inspiration to see women do these amazing things and yeah. come before me and set the example. Absolutely. I think, you know, when we see our heroes, we don't really think about what's going on around us. We just, we want to emulate that. Uh, and I take my hat off to you for that. Now let's talk about you. you. Did you enlist right away? You just went right into the Air Force after high school or how'd you do it? I applied to go to the Air Force Academy. Uh, it was my number one choice to go to college. Uh, I did apply to a few other schools because my parents made me. Uh, but the only place that I wanted to go was to the Air Force Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was it. That was my goal. That was my dream. It was everything I worked for. And then sadly, I got a rejection letter from the Air Force Academy. Uh, at the time, my um, SAT scores weren't spectacular. I got great grades and had a lot of other activities, but it's highly competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I will tell you that was a crushing blow. It was kind of the first real setback, I think on this journey, uh, for me. And I, I mean, I, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. And thankfully I had mentors and coaches and teachers and lots of people, including my parents to support me. And I decided I wasn't going to quit. I wanted to keep after it. I wrote the Air Force Academy on a weekly basis and just worked to improve and improve my SAT scores, eventually took the ACT uh, so if any high school uh, parents or students are listening, uh, take the other test if you're not doing well in one or the other. Uh, but that was a turning point for me. And I eventually got my letter of acceptance just a few weeks before I was to report for basic training. Wow, that's fantastic. So let's let's paint the picture of this timeline, because uh, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you enlisted, 9-11 happened, and uh, then all of a sudden you're deployed right yeah. away. Like it happened very quickly. So let's take our listeners on that journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I graduated from the Air Force Academy, went to grad school for a couple of years, and then went to pilot training, um, got the A-10 uh, as my airplane. And while I was in my A-10 training um, is when 9-11 happened. And I think in that moment, uh, I was in Tucson at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. I think we all realized that our lives is A-10 pilots, as Air Force officers, everything was about to change dramatically. And Mm -hmm. being in that unit, being part of a unit that supports ground troops, we knew there would be a response. And so we knew that A-10 pilots would be going. We just didn't know when or how. And we finished out our training very quickly. I reported to my first unit, which happened to be the 75th Fighter Squadron at Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina. And just a few months later, we deployed to Afghanistan to support Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, And... uh, you know, you you know that training is important. You understand the critical role of like doing everything you can so that you're ready for that moment. But wow, to turn the corner and deploy very quickly and to have, you know, those high expectations of performance. I mean, it was just, it was eye-opening for a young pilot. And I, I really wanted to excel. I wanted to do the best that I could uh, to make sure that we could support our troops on the ground. You talk about this uh, in the book, Arriving in Kuwait and, uh, it was it was mind blowing how many you know air vehicles and everything was on the ground ready to go out um, and it's hot as 
pardon yeah. me, hot as hell <laughs> over there. Um, I have a friend who was over in Afghanistan. He was a tank gunner, and he said that it was so hot at night they couldn't sleep in the tank. They had to sleep on the hood of the of the a hot tank. Okay, hello. It but, was pretty miserable for sure. <laughs> yeah. But talk about that because uh, you know when the only other time I think you know a lot of us may watch a movie, but to actually experience it, you know, in in Apocalypse Now when Martin Sheen arrives at that that base and the helicopters are everywhere and you see all these tents set up and um, training and drills are going on. You, you know, it, That's what happened when you arrived in Kuwait. Am I right? Yeah. I, and I had been there the year prior on our way to Afghanistan and just a very different kind of quiet almost environment. You know, a few, you know, a squadron or so of A-10s on the ramp in Kuwait. And then a year later, we turn to go to Iraq, we land in Kuwait, and we're one of the last units there. It's the first of March, and there are aircraft everywhere. I mean, as far as you can see, there are airplanes, um, multiple squadrons of A-10s, the Marines were there, Uh, we had rescue helicopters there. I mean, it was just aircraft. I mean, the base was packed. I mean, it was just humming with activity. And the threat level is much higher now. There were concerned about a chemical attack, of some sort, everybody's wearing chem gear. I mean, it just is a very, very surreal in many ways of like, this is different. Something, you know, we, I think we really all felt like we were going to war and there wasn't much that was going to stop it. It was just like, we were on this path and, you know, we spent days just watching the news and waiting and talking about our role and our mission and not sure what we would be able to do or, you know, how fast we would be doing it. And for me as a young pilot, I was just I wasn't even sure I was going to fly. I thought maybe they'll have me work in the mission planning cell. I'm fairly young mm-hmm. and inexperienced. And, and then it turned out as the war launched um, and the war kicked off um, that we needed every pilot we could get. And uh, I was uh, I was asked to fly and we were flying almost daily once the war kicked off. It was very busy, very intense. A lot of uh, what we call alarm reds, indications of incoming missiles. I mean, it was just it is a little bit of like what you read about in the books and to be in that environment, it was just a a huge reality check. Were you afraid of death every day? No, I think we were so focused on the mission. Mm -hmm. We couldn't, we couldn't wallow in that fear. I think we talked about it. I think in some ways our squadron commander forced us, forced us to think about it because before the war kicked off, he said, he sat us all down and he said, look, I don't know you know, exactly how this will play out, but I'm, I am asking you all to write letters home to your family so that if you don't make it, I have a letter to deliver to your family. And everybody just kind of was like looking at each other, like, this is real, like this is happening. And, uh, and he said, and oh, by the way, if you would like to fly, then you will have those letters. Uh, So it wasn't really, it wasn't a choice for us. We had to write the letters. He didn't read them. So, you know, it was a choice of what to put in them, but um, that was kind of the reality check that made us all just think about before the war, you know, the reality of what we were going to do and the threats and the risk was real. Uh, And then we kind of just put it aside and focused on the mission and doing the best job that we could for each other, but also for the troops on the ground. It's amazing. I don't, I don't think people really have to face death that way. You know, it's just incredible and a testament to you and your training and, and your commanding officers who were there for you, who probably already seen combat to get you through this. Um, I remember my great uncles, they, they were in world war two. They were my grandfather's brothers and, uh, my uncle Jack Bowers 
He survived the Battle of Midway, and then his destroyer was sunk a month later uh, off the coast of Okinawa, uh, and he never talked about it. This is yeah. this is the crazy thing that World War II, you know, guts and glory kind of thing. They were quiet men. Um, my other uncle, uh, Don Claudy, uh, he loaded the Enola Gay. I mean, we never knew. I I found out at the at the funeral. I'm like, wow. right, what? <laughs> you know. Um, you guys are cut from a different cloth. That's all I have to say. You, uh, those of you who yeah. serve in the military, uh, God bless I wish, you. I just wish we knew more of their stories, though, right? I'm so thankful yeah. that they're, you know, we've had those the stories out there because they did yeah. such amazing things and courageous things. And uh, you know, I think about the pilots that came before me. You know, my time came after 9/11, but I look at the pilots that came before me that flew in Desert Storm. And they would come to the bar on a Friday night in our fighter squadron and tell stories about what they went through and their experiences. And, you know, there's also this moment of like, oh, that'll never happen to me. I don't have to worry about that. But you remember those stories. And I read books about A-10 pilots that had flown in Desert Storm. And what I realized is how critical those stories were for me to hear the stories, to understand the lessons, to know what they went through and how they handled it. And so for me, I realize the importance of sharing those stories. And, um, you know, I'm thankful to have the opportunity to um, to interact with Vietnam veterans, uh, Korea War veterans. Obviously, there's very few from World War II still around, but any opportunity yeah. I can to hear their stories and learn of their amazing accomplishments, I mean, I will take it because I think there's so much we can learn from them. It's true. I, I mean, you know, your story, we're going to continue on with this, but you know, I'm sure in the back of your head, you're thinking, okay, this one pilot told me don't give up, you know, kind of story. And and you, you don't, um, I interviewed Max James and, uh, he talked about, uh, being shot down twice in Vietnam and that, that feeling is you're dropping out of the sky and then landing in a village and hoping it's friendly. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we're on the edge of our seat going, how, how did you do that? Um, and like I said, you guys are, you're cut from a different cloth. You just, and I think it's your training too. You learn to keep your, your focus. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's training, it's preparation. It's all the work you put in leading into this moment so that it's just, it's almost muscle memory. You just get right back in, you fall back into that training. And so in that moment, I mean, and that's really, for me, I look back, you know, why was I successful? How do I overcome fear? It's it is the training, it's the preparation, it's everything that goes into that moment. So you're ready to face your fears. Yeah. So let's continue on. You arrive over there, and I heard this on another interview, and I was I was literally cracking up because a lot of people don't realize. You know, we have a lot of modern technology today, and pilots are issued this amazing iPhone that's got all the the technology on it and things like that. But you were in this this. Uh, pretty analog basic uh aircraft and you're using paper maps oh, with yeah. china markers yeah <laughs> so talk about that a little bit yeah that i mean that's how we flew so i mean before we brief there's a giant paper map on the wall and we take our paper maps that we're going to fly with on our airplanes we use these grease pencils and we mark down different threats where the friendlies are but it's a paper map um and this is this is obviously back in 2003 um, but that's how we fly. We fly with paper maps. We flew with binoculars uh, so that we could see wait, targets. Wait, wait, binoculars? What's that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, space-stabilized binoculars are a little bit better than your everyday binoculars. But still, I mean, you can imagine you're flying an airplane at, you know, 200, 250 miles per hour. 
and you're holding a paper map, looking at it, looking outside, trying to make sense of it. And you've got binoculars where you're looking outside as well. Thankfully today, uh, we have significantly upgraded our technology, but we we learned to adjust and adapt with what we had. Oh my God. I'm, I'm just imagining all this because I spoke with a World War II pilot who got shot down and wound up in a, a Nazi camp. Okay. And he told me, they had like six weeks of training. They had never flown before ever. And he tells me the joystick was basically a broom handle with a rubber handle slapped on it, you know, from a bicycle. Um, and, and that was back in those days. So now you're you're flying this. I'm sure younger pilots are looking at you like, how did you do that? You know, it's like uh, nothing makes you feel older than when they say, you, you mean you didn't have a computer? It's like, you don't know how to use it. Like, that's how they think. So you make the most of it, you learn how to deal with it. And then, and then the new technology comes along and you've got to learn that all over again. Yeah. So let's talk about that first mission, that first deployment. Uh, I'm sure you had butterflies in your stomach, but you, you went up and what happened? Well, I, I think um, initially when we started flying in Iraq, it was fairly quiet. I mean, we were obviously there's a nerves, I think, always in any time you're doing something new and you want to perform at your best. So I was definitely nervous. I didn't want to make mistakes or screw up. Uh, I wanted to be a good wingman and, and be there for our troops on the ground. But those first couple missions were very quiet. I mean, our troops, because our ground troops were moving so fast, there just wasn't much of a threat at the time until we got to Baghdad. And that that's when everything changed. So let's talk about that. You almost got shot down. Let's talk about that mission from the beginning. Yeah, you went up. Let's describe this um, for our for the audience because I've heard some of you, you know, how you talked about this, but to really be there, uh, I mean, I'm on the edge of my seat listening to you tell it. So let's start there. Yeah. So this was April seventh, two thousand three, um, and uh, really a day like every other day. Our mission at that point, um, because the ground troops had moved towards Baghdad. We would take off, uh, we would fly up to Baghdad, we would air refuel, so get gas while airborne, and then we would just wait in these stacks around Baghdad. And the situation on the ground is now very intense. There's a lot of firefights, so they just stack aircraft up around Baghdad, kind of in these north, south, east, west. So if somebody has a call for fire, airplanes will be called out of the stack uh, to go assist them. And Unfortunately, on this day, the one thing that was very different was there were clouds everywhere. I mean, clouds covering Baghdad as far as we could see. And, and so even though we were in the stack, I mean, I remember talking back and forth with my flight lead and he said, I don't know if we're going to be able to do anything today. I mean, we've got to be able to get below the weather. Um, and that's the only way at the time that we can employ weapons. And then we get this frantic call over the radio and our ground troops are taking fire. They needed immediate assistance. And now it's like, okay, now it's go time. We have to find a way to get below the weather. We're going to do everything that we can. And, you know, I remember the hair on the back of my neck stands up, like my adrenaline is pumping because I hear this call. I know it's time to go. Um, we were listening to the ground controller describe what's happening on the ground. And he says that our friendly troops are hunkered down awaiting resupply because they had moved so fast. And the enemies over on the east side of the Tigris River, they're firing rocket propelled grenades into our troops. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, we're marking things on our map. We're trying to get, get moving and figure out where we need to go. We proceed directly over to the target area and we're still above the weather at this point. We can't see any of this below us happening. And my flight lead says, all right, Casey, we're going to be, uh, we're going to use guns on the enemy. 
and wedge, which is our position, meaning I'm just kind of tucked in right there with him. And he says, I'm going to get below with the weather first, and then it'll be your turn. So I watch him just kind of roll inverted, and he finds this hole in the clouds and dives down through. Uh, and then he says, all right, it's your turn. And I found a hole in the clouds and just rolled through and wasn't really sure what I was going to see when I popped out down below the weather or how low I would be. Um, and I remember breaking out below the weather, coming down below the clouds and instantly seeing this firefight. I mean, I could see flashes and smoke and tracers and it was very surreal for a second. It was like, this is everything that we talk about. This is everything that we train for. And as I'm thinking of that and looking for my flight lead and getting ready to set up to make sure that I can employ my weapons, I start to see these puffs of like gray and white smoke. And then all of a sudden bright flashes in the air right next to my cockpit. And I very quickly realized not only is there this firefight happening across the river, but the enemy sees us too. And the enemy is now shooting up at us as well. Wow. Um, and we acknowledge it. We talk about it. We say, we're going to keep our jets moving and we're going to get in quickly and put firepower down on the ground and alleviate some of the pressure off of our friendly troops. And uh, we decide we'll just do a couple quick passes, get in there very quickly, and then climb up uh, based on the threat scenario. Uh, so we do a couple passes and I'm set up for my last pass, which is now going to be rockets down on the enemy location. And I'm doing all the things that I normally do, all the things that we train to do. I'm checking my switches and parameters, my distance from the target, my altitude, making sure everything's right. And I remember just rolling in, making sure I could find the enemy location, hit the weapons release button, and then immediately pull off, you know, trying to get away from the ground, away from the threat. And then this boom and this huge explosion happens at the back of the airplane. There's no doubt in my mind. Immediately, I know I'm hit. The jet rolls over and it's point, pointing down at the ground. I mean, I, I'm kind of thrown forward in the cockpit. And I look down and I can just see Baghdad getting closer. And, um, you know, I look down at my ejection handles thinking this is about the last thing that I want to do right. um, because I pull back on the control stick and nothing happens. I mean, I'm just kind of plunging to the ground at this point. And I realized that, you know, I've got to do everything I can to make every second count. Um, I quickly try to analyze what's going on. I've got lights flashing everywhere. My caution panel is lit up with lights everywhere. And um, I just remember looking up at the hydraulic gauges, which is what allows us to fly our airplanes. And it's depleted. It's at zero. Both systems completely depleted. And at this point, I know my options are eject, which does not sound good, or try to get the jet in our backup emergency system. and. Thankfully, I flip that switch in the airplane. I pull back on the stick and it just slowly starts to climb up and away from the ground. And that's kind of the first moment I'm like, okay, I, I might actually survive this. Um, and then, you know, I, the, the work is yet. I mean, I still have a ton of work to do right. to get out of Baghdad. So you're maintaining altitude now. You you pulled back up. Um, did you alert uh, the, the tower or any, you know, my how you communicate. Did you alert them as to what was going on? Um, at some point, um, I key the radio to tell my flight lead um, who is there with me uh, to that I had been hit. And I don't say much. I say two got hit, two got hit. That's it. And okay. he immediately goes into this like directive guidance reactive mode of just, he tells me to put out more chaff and flare, which is from our countermeasure system. So the enemy doesn't hit it, hit my airplane again. Uh, he doesn't know what's wrong with my airplane at this point, but he tells me to go west, which is where our friendly troops are. He's thinking if I have to eject, at least I can come down over the friendly location. Right. And then I tell him that I'm in this backup emergency system, 
called manual reversion. And he immediately knows the severity. Now, this is not just I've been hit, but now he understands the damage to my airplane. And uh, he's being very directive with me and knows how serious the situation is. So I was grateful to have his support. He's also talking to our ground troops, letting them know what happened so that, again, if I have to eject, they're at least alerted that, hey, there's a pilot and a parachute coming down. Um, thankfully, that didn't happen. And, and now, um, you know, it, now we begin the, the grueling task of get out of Baghdad. We, you know, at this point, I still might have to eject. We don't really know how long the airplane's going to keep flying. Right. And so the priority is just get out of Baghdad, get away from the immediate threat. Because if I have to eject, at least outside of Baghdad, there's probably a greater chance of rescue and recovery at that point. Um, but I was very thankful to have a wingman by my side to provide that mutual support in that really critical moment. Now let me ask you: Was the the aircraft on fire while you're you're trying to get back to base? There was a fire at some point. I mean, I saw it after I landed. The whole backside of the jet was charred. Um, I think wow. likely what happened is that when the missile impacted the airplane, um, it immediately you know dumped hydraulic fluid. There's a fireball, so it probably at that point is what happened. So there wasn't you know no lingering fire. I mean, I had no indications of a fire, but it's likely when missile impacts, hydraulic fluids dumping out, fireball chars the whole backside of the airplane. Did they ever tell you at any point uh, as you're limping back to eject? Did they say any of that? Uh, of that? No, my flight lead and I talked about it. I mean, the whole way back, I had an hour, good or bad. I had an hour to fly back uh, to our base. And um, I knew that my decision at this point, now that we, the airplane is flying and uh, we were confident that it will make it back to Kuwait was, do I just get back to friendly territory and eject? Or do I fly it back and attempt to land? And uh, that decision was like the hardest decision I've ever made in my life because it felt like if I make the wrong decision, I could die trying. I mean, I felt like yeah. this is a life or death decision. And and thankfully I had an hour to make it. I had an hour to think about it. I had an hour to contemplate and talk it through and go through the pros and cons, an hour to fly the airplane and figure it out. And I, I really felt confident in the way that it was flying. And uh, uh, so nobody told me to eject. It, it was certainly the option was on the table. Right. I think if Hollywood makes your movie, it's going to be, you know, you need to eject and you're going to say, you can go to hell. You know, that <laughs> the kind of drama would take place. Um, I love the the listening to your wingman uh, give you uh, guidance, mentorship in that moment. Yeah. Um, so when you brought the aircraft back, the Warthog seems to be a tough plane. Am I correct? Absolutely. What, I mean, what it makes... It was yeah, built to take these hits, right? I mean, and the A-10 was built to support our ground troops, built to take these hits. So if you lose one hydraulic system, the other takes over. If you lose both systems, we have this emergency backup system. I mean, it's just a very tough, reliable, durable airplane. So, I mean, it I mean, it got me home safely after a pretty significant amount of battle damage. Good. So after you landed, uh, what was the assessment? What? How much were you hit? Uh, so I, I landed and uh, stopped on the runway I, I, because I was out of hydraulics. I, I couldn't steer. I, there was only an emergency braking, very few braking applications. So I got out of the airplane with the airplane on the runway. And I remember hopping down out of the airplane and it's all these Marine firefighters uh, are there to meet me and they're looking at me and then they're looking at the airplane and kind of this look of shock. And I haven't seen it yet. I can't see any of the damage. So I hop out, I, I kind of shake their hands and say thank you and then walk around because I'm anxious to see the damage. 
And I just, I couldn't believe the amount of damage. I mean, the airplane is dripping with hydraulic fluid. There are holes everywhere. I think the total count is something over 600 holes from all the shrapnel damage. What? (laughs) The backside of the airplane is black and charred and again, dripping. I could push on the skin of the airplane. It's soft to the touch. There's a giant hole in the back. Um, Pieces of the airplane had come off as I was making my way back. So little bit more damage than I thought, I guess. Wow. Um, and uh, they assessed that at some point, you know, the missile impacted the back horizontal stabilizer, which is the back tail section of the airplane, sent shrapnel into the fuselage and tail section. And that's where it damaged my flight control systems. You know, if it had been a little bit further to the left or to the right, either way, um, you might not be here today. So that oh, I know I, I feel very lucky in some ways. I guess that you could look at it as they got a lucky hit, but I also feel very lucky that, you know, lucky that I was able to make it back safely. Lucky that I was flying the A-10 and had this very durable and reliable airplane. Wow. It's mind-blowing that that you got through that. And uh, yeah. thank you for sharing that. Now, you, you were married to your husband, Scott, at that time. Am I correct? And what was he thinking when he finally got to you? It's like, Thankfully, he was sleeping when all of this happened. And he was, uh, <laughs> by the time he woke up, he was working the night shift. My husband was an A-10 pilot as well, but was deployed working with some special forces on the ground as their air liaison officer. And uh, he uh, was asleep. <laughs> and uh, when he woke up, he you know went to his shift like normally. And about halfway to their op center, um, the I think two or three star general, his boss, uh, he ran into him and he said, hey, Soup, which is his call sign, last name's Campbell, very exciting. Uh, he said, hey, Soup, I'm, I'm so glad your wife is okay. Um, you know, please tell her I'm, I'm just grateful that she's okay and she's doing well. And he was like, you know, I think he was in shock. He didn't even say anything. He's like, yes, sir. And he's like, what? Like, he just in this moment of like, what just happened? And so he continued on to the op center and he he walks in and like everybody's staring at him and he immediately goes over to his desk and the intelligence officer is sitting there and, and uh, he's like, oh, Soup, I left you a note. And there was a note on his uh, computer that said, uh, hey, your wife got hit over Baghdad. She's OK, but you should give her a call. So that's how he found out. <laughs> wow. Um, and thankfully, because we were both in these classified environments, we could actually talk on a secure phone line and I could just walk him through the whole story and what happened. And with about 20 people listening on either side, but still uh, we were able to talk about it and and share what happened. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, I'm I'm thankful he was sleeping. I can't even imagine going through that and not knowing the outcome. Yeah. That that's, that's rough on a spouse. It yeah. really is. Uh, when you're in the, the combat zone. Um, you truly are, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, top gun. <laughs> okay. So um, when you watch these movies, what, what do they get wrong? I mean, what, what did movies like this get wrong? Well, the focus for a movie is entertainment. Uh, right. So they get a lot of things wrong, but they get some things right. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I love Top Gun. I love both the movie. I love the right. new one, the old one. Um, I um, What I enjoy is the the camaraderie like that you see in the fighter squadron, it's probably a little bit more cutthroat and competitive than I would say that I've seen in my fighter squadrons. I mean, we're competitive, but it's the whole idea is making the rest of the team better. We're going to push each other and challenge each other and lift each other because the idea is when you do that, then the whole team's better. Uh, so there's a little bit, you know, there's some truth to that though. And the, the fun and the games that go along with it. 
Uh, I love the camaraderie. I mean, the flying is, uh, you know, it's it's accurate enough, uh, but is it authentic uh, and true to form all the way through? No, but it sure is entertaining. So and yeah. it, I have to tell you, watching uh, the most recent Top Gun, like I was definitely having some, um, you know, just like, you know, as I'm watching them fly through in the missile shot, missile shots and watching them react. Um, also same with the movie devotion. Um, I mm-hmm. love that movie. I thought it was a great showing of what wingmen do for each other and how they work together and watching, um, you know, one of the pilots have to crash land and what the other pilot was saying at the time. I mean, it brought me right back to my experience. So I think there is, there's value and truth to it and sharing the story, but there's also Hollywood entertainment as well. Absolutely. I've worked with, uh, in my martial arts career, I've worked with women black belts. And uh, I remember the first time I entered the ring with a, a woman black belt and I'm a white belt. Uh, she just jumped up and gave me a roundhouse to the head. Boom, down. <laughs> I'm on the ground. So I get back up and I go, oh, that's how we're playing this. I could never beat her until I got to a certain belt level. I've noticed there's an energy behind certain women that choose your profession and a mindset. Uh, let's, let's delve into that a little bit because we're in a day and age where feminism seems to have split all over the place. My mom was a feminist and, um, you bring to the table, this strength, this grit, this resilience that I really, I I want you to open up about that because some people I'm sure are sitting here going, well, how did, how did she get through this? How is she, how, you know, you had that goal and you set it and you survived. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that, about strong women and what is going on inside your resiliency meter, let's say. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when I went into my very first fighter squadron um, on day one, I knew that I was going to be the only female pilot. Mm-hmm. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. I I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to let my team down. I didn't want to make mistakes. I felt like if I made a mistake or if I failed in some way that I would ruin it for all the women that followed me. And I mean, that is a ton of pressure to put on myself. I suppose the positive side of that pressure is that I worked really hard. I really, I wanted to be credible. I studied, I worked my butt off. I mean, I really put everything I had into it. And, you know, the reality was the guys in my squadron, I knew many of them from my time at the Air Force Academy and they they just wanted me to be credible in the airplane like everybody else. Um, it, it took some getting used to, don't get me wrong. Like, how do I act? You know, what can I say? What's what's okay, what's not? And I think, you know, it was just a learning experience. But I think for me, walking in there and being credible and, you know, working hard and working with my teammates and all of those things, really, that's what mattered. That's what mattered the most. And then we deployed to combat and I proved myself capable in combat. And it was like, this discussion of gender doesn't matter, not one bit. I mean, yeah, I look different. I sound different on the radio, but the jet doesn't care at all. Uh, and the guys on the ground don't care either. They ca- they care about having an A-10 pilot overhead that is credible and capable in the airplane. So I think for me, that was that was what it was all about. And I throughout my career, I realized, you know, I look back on that moment over Baghdad and I think about, you know, why was I successful? How was I able to, in that moment, quite honestly, terrified. Like I can hear the fear in my voice when it happens. And I know that I'm scared, but why was I able to respond and take action? And for me, it's like, it's the preparation that we talked about. It is all of the preparation and training and everything that we went to leading up to this. It is all the times that I practice, whether in the simulator or sitting in a chair in my 
in my room at night, just practicing through the mission and thinking through the mission, like I was in the cockpit and going through kind of the what if scenarios and thinking through contingencies. I mean, all of that training, all of those hard things that I went through, I think prepared me for that one moment. Um, And I think that more than anything, that credibility, that capability, being prepared so that, you know, when that moment comes, no matter what it is in your life, that you are ready and prepared to respond. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. You know, because it's, you know, sometimes uh, it's purpose that gets us through training that gets us through and this, yeah. Yeah, it's all of it. I mean, I was very committed to the mission. I had definitely found my purpose in life and supporting our troops (laughs) on the ground and I wanted to be good at it. Yeah. Um, for many reasons. And, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into it, which meant that, you know, when things went wrong, I was ready. I mean, I was prepared for that moment. And um, I never thought it would be something that would happen to me. But in that moment, it was, you know, I, like you were saying, I fell back on remembering some of the stories that people had shared with me, I fell back on training, it was all of those things combined that I think, allowed me to be successful. Excellent. Ladies and gentlemen, please pick up a copy of her book, Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. Thank you so much, Kim. And may I call you Casey? I know that's your... Absolutely. It's my call sign. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being on Awakened Nation. Um, I do a lightning round, but before we go into that lightning round of questions, uh, how do people get a hold of you? Because I know some people, uh, they might want to hire you for speaking or they're interested in your videos, things like that. Where do we go to find out about you? I think the easiest place is uh, my website because it's got links to all the social media and email uh, available there. And my website is kim-kc-campbell.com. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram as well. LinkedIn is the same, Kim Casey Campbell. Uh, Twitter and Instagram are both kchawg987. 987 was the tail number for the aircraft that I flew Uh, in 2003. So there's meaning behind all of it. Uh, But definitely reach out, especially if I didn't answer a question that you have today, um, listening in, if there's something that you'd want to ask, I'd love to hear from listeners and readers alike, uh, just to get their feedback. You're also a hell of a keynote speaker. So I think if people had you uh, speak at their event, it's quite an inspiration to hear you go through this story and talk about survival. Well, thank you. It's been a lot of fun for me. I'm really enjoying this next chapter post-retirement and being able to connect with audiences and talk to people. um, It's just, it's been really meaningful and heartwarming and allowed me to find a new purpose after retiring from the Air Force. Got any more books in you? I don't know. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of work to write a book and it takes a lot of time and energy and you know, writing the book's part of it, then you got to publish it, then you got to promote it and market it so people know it's out there. So uh, the short answer is, I don't know. I've got to, you know, I'll definitely, uh, you know, I've got two young kids and they keep me busy. So I've got to find the time for sure. My first book, you know, I never considered myself a writer, but when I wrote my first book, I'm I'm three quarters of the way through and I just realized it's like writing a hundred (laughs) essays. Yeah. I talked to my son about the number of pages and the number of stuff that I wrote and then cut, you know, that I didn't even publish. And, and he's like, mom, that is, that is a lot of essays. Like that would have got me through high school. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. I take my hat off to anybody who writes and uh, yeah, God bless you. And it is true. A lot of those stories that you pulled out, guess what? That's your next book. Really? If you saved any of them, you know, you go go deeper into the principles. Max James just published his book, the the harder I fall, the higher I bounce. And uh, 
I told him, you know, you have enough here for another book on principles of success. And he's like, ah, I, I don't know if I want to write another book. That was, a, that was, and we all say that after the first one. So I'm hoping you have another one up your sleeve. Uh, eventually. Uh, I don't want you to eventually. rush. Yes. So I'm going to ask you a lightning round of questions and, uh, you know, we'll get to know you better. How's that? That sounds great. Good. All right. My first question is, um, what makes you cry? Uh, I would say, um, my kids, <laughs> um, in a positive way, like having two boys, mm-hmm. um, and when they have like, say meaningful things back to me. And I know sometimes we don't always feel like we get through as parents, but when we feel like we've made that connection and we get through, yeah, that's probably it. Good. It's, it's those awe moments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Thanks, mom. You're like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> What's your favorite out of everything you've accomplished, you, you and your husband, your children, everything? What's your favorite memory? There are so many. I think, um, again, I go back to spending 24 years in the Air Force and retiring. My husband and I had a joint retirement ceremony. And one of the traditions is you pin a retirement pin on on your spouse um, at our retirement ceremonies. And we pinned on ours uh, together on each other. Um, (laughs) It's like a wedding ceremony. (laughs) Yeah. But it was also like having our kids on stage with us and knowing that despite us spending 24 years and 25 years in the Air Force, like we finished together and our family is still together. And so I think that moment and that memory is something that I'm very proud of. That's fantastic. And I guess uh, my last question is, is there anything that you want to share with us that maybe we don't know about you? I think, um, oh, I, I come up with a couple of things, but I think, um, you know, I this book that I wrote, I talk about using the word fear in the title a little bit. And um I was hesitant to use that word fear. And I will tell you that I even some people gave me some feedback, like maybe you don't want to have fear in the title. And I thought, you know what, though, that's what this book is about. It is about flying in the face of fear. It's doing things even when you're afraid. And I think that sometimes we are so nervous and so worried about the fears that we face, the anxiety, the stress and worry that we feel And the reality is we all feel those things. You know, I have felt those things throughout my life. I mean, you'll know this if you read the book, but I, it's like, I think I was so worried about like letting people know this authentic true side of me that I do face fears. I do have doubts. I do have worries. What I've realized over time is that, you know, the the truth is what matters is what you do in those moments and what you do with it. And so I think sometimes people like hear the introduction or the resume and they're like, where have you had doubts or fears or worries or failures or mistakes? And the reality is that those are the things that have made me most successful. The doubts, the worries, the fears and doing it anyway. It is the mistakes and failures that I face that have really made me the person that I am, the leader that I am, the mom and the, the parent and the spouse that I am. And so I think that's when sometimes we think we know somebody, we see their resume, we we hear about them. And the, and the reality is that we all face fears in our lives. We all face doubts and worries. You have to be able to do something with it. You have to be able to take that, that next step to step up and take action, even in the face of fear. I call it this heroic conversations. 
you know, and, and we use that in the corporate world a lot. And these are conversations that, for lack of a better word, we may avoid. Uh, you know, we're in a day and age where people are having, you know, conversations where you're like, what? And we're not having those brass tacks down to the bottom. Let's let's get rid of all the BS and let's have a real conversation about this. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I I'm it's refreshing to hear someone like you talk because we have these ideas in our head that are still, you know, coming up from the past and we're letting them go. And yeah. you're a prime example. Have you ever had a, a, a young woman or a girl come up to you and just go, wow. And thank you. Yeah. That would be another thing that makes me cry. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will say that um, people that when I share stories, you know, the number of people that have come up young men and women that have said, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for um, letting me know that it is okay or that I can succeed, whatever it is, like that connection is so important. And that, I mean, that's the whole idea behind leading with courage. It is having the hard conversations. It is, you know, connecting with people on a human level. It is admitting mistakes. It's holding each other accountable. I mean, that's the whole point is we have to do these hard things, especially in leadership, but in our life as well. Yeah. That's a great way to close the show. Casey Campbell, Kim Casey Campbell, or should I, sorry, Colonel retired Kim <laughs> Casey Campbell. Thank you so much for being on Awakened Nation. I really, I really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. You got it. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Tune in next week. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.